I want to share another episode from the Language of Ahava podcast, and it's called The Developmental Impact of the Lost COVID Years. I know we have so many questions about children's social skills, academic skills, emotional skills, through all of the blips and obstacles and adaptations that have been required of children, of families, of schools, of teachers. There's just so many questions about whether this is a short-term impact, a long-term impact, or whether we will come out of this better than we entered it. Um, So let me share this episode with you. I have missed our ongoing See Me, Hear Me, Love Me conversations, but I do hope to be back in a few months with regular episodes of See Me, Hear Me, Love Me. But right now, here is one from the language of Ahava. I hope you enjoy it. Take care, everyone. This is episode number 17, and it is the developmental impact of the lost COVID years. We've been circling around this topic for the last few episodes. How has the isolation the masking, the social precautions, the talk of catching and or spreading a virus changed our children. Is it a short-term hiccup based on changes in children's social routines, or will there be long-term losses and gains that will change our social and educational assumptions for a large number of children? This has been a post that's circulating on social media for the last few weeks, and it's a, it's a chart that says, when was the last normal school year? For 12th graders, it's ninth grade. For 6th graders, it's 3rd grade. For our kindergartners to 2nd grade, never had a normal school year. For our early childhood children, never. For my family time families, They are all COVID babies. Even their birth experiences and their family rituals have changed during these children's first three years on this planet. So we have a lot to talk about, but let me first say hi to my co-host, Rabbi Steinhardt. How are you, Rabbi? I'm well, Karen. How are you? You feeling better? I'm feeling fabulous. Thank you. And, and a little bit of freedom. I mean, that's a whole other. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had COVID this week. It was a mild head cold. And um, it is, but but I, you know, the guilt, the fear, the what ifs, you know, there's and when and oh, yeah. the questions, you just feel like you're just not on stable ground. But I'm happy to see faces and have a conversation. So I'm glad to be back. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. And we have Dr. Marnie Schneider, who is a friend, a peer, um, but a most magnificent psychologist supporting children and families. She is a pediatric clinical neuropsychologist, which I'm thrilled to say she understands the developmental angles. She understands the family dynamic angles, and she's a parent, so she knows how real this struggle is. Marnie, welcome to Language of Ahava podcast. Hi, good morning, and thank you so much for having me and including me in this. It's really great and very timely. So, you know, you were the first person I thought of to join us. Um, What was, what's your initial response to that big, big question of, you know, 
what about the lost years? You know child development, you know how pieces fit together in growing people, in growing mm-hmm. skills, in, in families. How, how, how would you like to respond um, with a broad stroke? So uh, when we say you know development, I just want to make sure everybody understands Um, I actually have a master's degree in developmental psychology, um, and my doctorate is dual in clinical child and school psychology. So kids is what I know um, and what I live, not in my own house, not just that, but also in my office. When the first thing that comes to my mind is going to shock everybody, but if you know me, it's probably not, resilience. The human being is resilient, and we are going to be okay. That is what I believe. Thank you. Hiccups, there are going to be twists and turns and things maybe we have to step back and adjust expectations, but we're going to be okay. Okay, I want to throw it to Rabbi on resilience, but first I have two questions for you. And one is sort of that professional explanation of what you mean by resilience. The other question that I have for you is the just sort of the why do you believe we'll be okay? Because, um, I mean, I believe, you know, and I've been with young children for 35 years, that I know they are so fast when given the tools and the experiences that offset whatever, whether they were, whether they were hospitalized, whether there was trauma, we know from research on trauma of of all sorts, whether it's a collective trauma or a small trauma, that, that we can heal and build around and, and it's magnificent. So please, um, how do you know we'll be okay? And what do you mean by resilience? That to me or to Rabbi? To you first, and then Rabbi okay. on resilience, please. So we look at humanity and what we've been through for generations upon generations. And, and as a Jewish mom, I could say that too. You know, this is our story, generation upon generation, doing well, being resilient, recovering from situations and trauma, and moving forward. I know it because that's just the way nature has us move forward as well as the nurturing of our nature. Yes, there will be some outliers. Okay, here's what I mean. When we talk about trauma, major trauma, whether it's war or we can keep going, not everybody is an outlier having major distress and disorganization. Most people can pull it together with their village, with the people around them, their own internal experiences, how their others are are experiencing and move forward and be okay. So I look at the data, the gross, the bigger data of how people are. And I know that we're going to be okay with hiccups, but that's also part of life. I love it. And we will come back to the specifics. Rabbi, your perspective on the lost years um, for young children or for family development, because you do so much with couples and families, Rabbi. You know, when, when you prepare family, young couples for marriage, you're helping them prepare for hiccups so often. So I think in terms of the socialization that takes place with other children, with peer groups, these have been really difficult years and we can recognize that. Um, on the other hand, if you speak about families and family relations, these years have 
also given us the opportunity to be more together, to do more together, to relate together in more ways where, because we're, we were home and we weren't running out all the time. And so, and, you know, everybody speaks about things like silver linings that, that could be a silver lining in all this. And there's the, there, there's also the choices that were made in terms of what did we do with the time that we had when we were home? Um, I think, you know, from a, like the perspective of a rabbi looking at our history, and Marnie touched on this, you know, we have had, um, we've had a really challenging history, our people, but it's not just our people, all people are challenged with life. I think that one of the really great difficulties in the attitude towards this stuff is that we're talking about a generation that grew up with such a, uh, and during such a golden period such a gilded life where everything that, you know, people wanted pretty much they got. And, you know, there was a sense, there is a sense, and I don't say this to, in a pejorative way, but there is a sense of entitlement that people have and they think everything is going to be good and everything should be good and will always be good. But that's not the life that I know. That's not the life that you know. The life we know is filled with challenge. And again, what Marty said, you know, that's, it's the resilience in the face of challenge that's so important and that we're called upon to find in all of this. You know, as you began, I started to think about my mother who came from Nazi Germany at the age of 12, right? And I know that she lost years. She lost the year, the last year they lived in Germany in 1937, they were out of school. She lost this year, this whole year of travel and transition. She had to find a whole new world. You know what, she grew up to be a wonderful, a wonderful person, a wonderful wife, a wonderful mother. And in some ways, the challenge, I think, sensitized her and opened her heart to more. So I don't think we should be feeling badly for ourselves. I think we should be looking for the opportunities that we have right now and the opportunities that lie ahead to, to move forward. And I don't, I don't mean to sound harsh. I hope it doesn't sound harsh. But I don't, I don't, I just, I know it's, there's been a lot of darkness. But darkness can be our friend, you know, like it's, um, this is our life, and we just have to deal with it realistically. And Rabbi, can you say more about your mom's experience when she came here and how she um, had her needs met had to, to become the person she would eventually become? Because 12 is a very developmental time of disruption. Right. She worked really hard to become a, an English speaker without an accent. She <laughs> seeked out friends. You know, it's unu it was unusual, too, because most people that come from a foreign country, children, at the age of 12, they do retain accents. I never, my mother did not have an accent. But she did what she could do to make life, you know, fun and to make life uh, meaningful. And she worked really hard as a teenager. She also, the family, they owned a factory. They were very affluent in Germany. They came here with nothing. And my grandmother had to go to work in a factory and my grandfather got sick. And the two, their two kids had to go to work by the age of 14, 15 years old. But her, she never felt badly for herself. She always felt, she always felt privileged. And that's a really interesting thing. You know, if you have, if you live a life with a sense of gratitude for what you do have, as opposed to thinking a lot about what you don't have, uh, that gratitude really does raise your spirit. And I think that that's, I certainly learned that from her, to live life with gratitude. And humility, 
to be mm -hmm. able to to say in response to that entitlement because because of course we i know that feeling of entitlement that says well i shouldn't have to go work in a factory i shouldn't have to be humbled by these circumstances um and so to be able to embrace that i, I would like to ask rabbi the spiritual perspective of, of that humility. And then I would like to ask Marnie the, the, the psychological basis of that kind of humility that allows us to believe in our value, our worthiness, to, to do the work of whatever is asked us. And I think in the case of parents, parents are being asked every day to do something really hard for their children. Um, to get out of themselves for this greater good. And we're all being asked it every day, this greater good for each other, for community, for, for wearing our masks when we needed to wear our masks. To, to all of those things we were asked to do for others. Um, Rabbi, your mother's humility to be able to take on that. Yeah, I'd like to actually, I'd like to bring this, you know, it's connected to what you're saying, but a little bit of a different place. Um, I was friendly with a uh, family therapist in town, a guy, who, a man who's not Jewish. And he told me that a lot of the couples that he worked with, a lot of the men that he worked with were Jewish. And he said, um, and, and he himself was a minister in his previous life. And he said to me, when he speaks about spirituality to most of the Jewish guys that he treats or that he works with, he said, they, they say they don't have a spiritual life. They don't know how to find a spiritual life. So he called me up and he said to me, what do I say to a Jewish guy who says he doesn't have a spiritual life and that he can't access spirituality through prayer? And so I said, well, this is what I would say. I would say the guy should get a little pad and a pen and every day write down something that he feels grateful for and do an exercise that's an expression of gratitude because spirituality begins with a sense of, of gratitude. Gratitude comes from humility. It comes from a sense that you don't deserve it all. You're, there, is, there is such a thing as grace in this world. And so um, I never did a follow-up conversation with him, but he, he took my advice. And I think that it might have helped some of those guys. Thank you. Thank you. Marnie, humility, gratitude, resilience. So, so many. How would you counsel your clients to find it when they feel like they can't find it? I think there's a huge confusion in right now with hard and bad. Okay, so just because something is hard doesn't mean it's bad. Change of routine, having to do things that are difficult doesn't mean it's a, a bad thing. And yes, sometimes really amazing blossoming things happen as a result. We just have to be willing to see those opportunities as Rabbi was saying, opportunities. So with gratitude, and some people have a hard time with the word gratitude, they prefer appreciation because it feels whatever better for them. It's okay. What can you appreciate? I appreciated the grace you guys gave me moving from two different rooms because my internet wasn't working great. Okay. We get up, we move. It's no big deal. We do it for each other and our community. And we say, okay. I think part of also the, the, the issue with community and wearing our masks for ourselves and for others and that behavior has become foreign is 
as we've moved away from communities living closer, families closer to families, being whether it's the synagogue, the center of the community, and people gathering closer. You used to do things in other generations for community. It was just so much easier because you were connected better. Now we're so disconnected and into ourselves that to do something for somebody else seems foreign. And I, I think that's terrible and we should be doing more for our village. Yeah. We do our village. Yeah. Marty, you know, one of the things that I thought about, you know, as someone who's kind of the director of a community, this particular mm -hmm. B'nai Torah community, is that before COVID was even considered, mm -hmm. before we even heard the word, there's been, there was a problem going on for a few decades with people moving away from communal living or mm -hmm. from feeling a commitment or a connection to community. Very famous book was written by a Harvard sociologist called Bowling Alone. People weren't interested in communal structures. What COVID has done for me as a, as a, as a rabbi in this position is I believe what it has revealed to people the need for community. And so now it's up to us to strengthen communal structures so that people will feel committed, connected to it, and will come back to community because we do need the village. There is no doubt about it. We cannot live, we cannot live alone. We cannot live in isolation. So I think that that's really important. And in our tradition, by the way, Community is, uh, is, is everything. The connection to community is everything. This past week, one last thing. This past week, Tom Friedman wrote an op-ed piece where he talked about the difference between freedom and responsibility. And so that's the battle right now. You know, the people, who, the anti-vaxxers or the people that don't want to wear masks, et cetera, et cetera, say, it's not comfortable for me. I don't want it. I don't trust science, whatever it is. But what, what Friedman's saying is that's the other side of a sense of, I have responsibility for other people around me. And that's what's lost, but that's what community has to, that's what community has to bring to people, a sense that you ain't here alone. You know, you're here with others and you're not just responsible for yourself, you are responsible for other people too. If I'm not for myself, who am I? If I'm only for myself, what am I? Thank you, right. Rabbi. Yeah. So let me take that community question and reframe it in a how-to question for Marnie, mm -hmm. which is as we try to bring everyone back, we know our children may not have the social skills or the social, or, or, or that they are, have increased social anxiety. They don't know how to mm, blend back into community or to groups. And I will mm -hmm. say, I think a lot of parents and, and adults have a similar anxiety. It's like, this was great Zooming on in your pajamas for services. And now we're gonna ask people to be inconvenienced, maybe, um, hopefully, to come back out and be present with us, um, whether it's in schools, in synagogues, in, in, in social events. Marnie, what are your tips for this, for social anxiety and for coming back into physical community and groups? I think we lost her. Yeah. Um, so Rabbi, what, uh, let's just go to you in terms of how do we help facilitate that, that physical connection and presence? Because um, there are people that are really happy to, to, to stay at an arm's distance. Yeah. 
Well, it becomes available and we have to speak the language of community and the language of welcoming. Look, I have, I have met, I've, I've been confronted with a lot of really angry people in the last few months. Yes. And I understand, you know, we have to understand, we have to understand that anger, you know, that it's real. And, you know, that's the type of thing that sometimes someone can be reacting in situations with a lot of anger and they don't, they don't, they're not conscious of it. You know, they don't have a self-awareness about it, but if you point it out, then in a way that's gentle in a way that's respectful. And then you say, you know, you don't have to bring that anger to me. We can talk about this. I hear you, you know, like we hear each other. We need each other. Thank you, Rabbi, because I think you've hit it. Marnie, the question was, um, how do we help families support children with social anxiety, but also grown-ups? And when Rabbi goes to that situation of meeting angry people, that's, that whole aggression in young children, anger, lack of belonging, lack of acceptance that we are all experiencing interpersonally, I think is, 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 is the next hurdle. But I think you're right, Rabbi, before we can look at the hiccup of children acting out in, in classrooms, we have to look at grown-ups acting out because they feel at odds with the world. Marnie, help us just create, being able to welcome people back into social experiences. Am I mute? Am I muted or is it good? We hear you. You're good. You're good. Okay, sorry. Okay. So typically when we're talking about angry people, we're also talking about anxious people. They're so uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with those big feelings and that energy. So they come out like that. So with kids, especially, I suggest that you go to things. Don't step back, go, go step in, step in early. I mean, there is an activity be the first ones there, not the ones walking into the situation happening already. So you can, the, the kids are now involved as it evolves, not just walking into chaos. Because that's, if you have a very anxious child, that's what it would feel like walking into a big party. If you're there first and everybody's coming in, you don't seem to notice it the same way. So go, go and judge after. Have a discussion after not assume it's going to be bad. And I had this yesterday in my office, a lovely teenager going to bar and bat mitzvah stages, afraid to go to bar and bat mitzvahs. So we had to have a whole strategy. What are our strategies? Realistic strategies. Okay, eat before. Yes, there's always food, but if you get caught up with, with your friends and you're running around and you don't eat and then you don't feel good and then you, you panic and you want to go home. So have a snack before. So that's just being prepared. Okay, grab a jacket with you so you can be prepared in case you're chilly. Okay, we're going into the situation with armor so early. Have an exit strategy if needed. This is not just bar bar mitzvah, this is everything. Mo mommies, daddies, grandmas, grandpas, whoever come with the kids to the park, go, go with the snacks, go with an exit strategy, make it, you know, shorter is better than longer and overdone. So we can arm ourselves with practical things to make getting back into life better, but don't avoid, go and judge after. And Karen, I, I would say, Karen, also, I would say it might be easy to blame it on um, COVID but, and being isolated. But the, the truth is 
there's a large percentage of kids that are anxious about going into public, especially young teenagers, into public social situations and without COVID being there. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think you deal with it the way you would deal with the situation of a kid of a kid who's anxious to be with other peers. And not it's not it's not a COVID story. It's not. It's bigger than COVID. It's and it's deeper. It's a cultural story, as you said, the bowling alone story. And, yes. And psychological, right, right. And so, Marnie, another question that follows with that is because I have a list of questions from a mom who wasn't able to join us today. And she wanted to know about um, her child leaving the house. And it's like, do we need masks? Do we not need masks? Where are we going? And her question is have we instilled too much fear? or too much caution. And so how does a parent navigate the, how much preparation do I, do I give myself and my child to go back out in, into the world when your child has questions? So what I love about this question um, is it makes me think of calendar time for all the preschoolers and even you know the little ones, kindergarten, first and second, they all sit down at the calendar every single day and discuss the weather. They do. They have the weather monitor. You check outside or you put change the weather on the cat. They do it all. All of these kids are used to it. So if we use the weather analogy for masks, the same thing. We would say, ah, today's a raincoat day because it's going to rain. Make sure we have a raincoat or umbrella. Hey, we're going to go to a big place. Today's a mask day. Let's make sure we have it. We we'll always have extras in the car. That's not and too much or too little, that's just being prepared. How you deliver the message of preparedness makes the difference, right? They would get that, kids would totally understand. Yeah, there's a weatherman or a weather woman or the girl of the day who's doing it or, you know, good old Willard Scott, I think may he rest in peace, I think. I think. Um, we all know that there are ways to be prepared for the day bringing a mask with you is just like a sweatshirt. No more, no less. And the same thing would go for um, that concern over catching or spreading a virus. You know, I think that kids, especially in concrete thinking, have these, you know, viruses are little monsters running around their world, um, which can be fun and playful as well as misunderstood. Um, how do we give kids that framework? I mean, I think what you're talking about is that normalizing, you know, like if a parent is comfortable with the reality, then a child is going to feel like they are safe and grounded in whatever their reality is. And to Rabbi's life is beautiful example from before. It's if we bring our playfulness, if we bring acceptance, then our children feel our comfort, even if it's hard. So to yeah, I mean, what I'm going to say right now is completely subjective. And I might be wrong about it, but in our own Hebrew school, um, We've had very few parents uh, push back against the masking policy, very few. Um, but the only parents who said that their kids can't stand wearing masks um, and aren't comfortable with it are the, were parents who they themselves are anti-maskers. So I think kids are, kids are very, very, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, flexible. And, you know, if you tell kids you're wearing masks, you wear masks. I was just with my grandchildren last weekend. And they, their parents encourage them to wear masks, but they don't even have to encourage them anymore. 
the kids know when they go out and their masks in the car and when they go into the mall or whatever we went to show and the kids take their masks and that's it and they've been doing it for a long time and it's mm -hmm. it's reinforced and it's not a problem that's the way they're living their life right now and you know what in a few months god willing those masks will come off but not not now so when it comes off they come off yeah but again I, you're absolutely right it's you know, the, so much of what we feel is transferred to our children, whether it's conscious or mostly it's subconscious or unconscious. But, you know, our parents, our kids pick up on our fears and our anxieties and our likes and our dislikes. Yeah. So to t from that, I think the next one that's on Lindsay's list here is clinginess. What do we do with children who are hanging on? And, and maybe it's not a parent um, who's who who can, can self-manage their discomfort easily. And so they are really struggling with, oh, we've lost her. <laughs> yep. oh, she's back, yay. Um, but that idea of a parent doesn't want their child to be anxious and they don't want to share, burden their child with their own anxiety. But how do we manage parent anxiety and the mm, subsequent clinginess of a child if the two are related? So yes, anxious parents more often have anxious children because that energy definitely bleeds out. So most of the time I would tell those parents, fake it. Pretend it's okay. Fake it on the, as much as you can. Freak out at another time away from your kids or have that moment because they are not mini you. Kids have their own experiences. The same life would be really boring. Experience what is on their terms and just after appropriately okay that's thing is most of just parents i mean all parents do want our kids to have it easier if we can see it easier yeah. and back with hard and bad is not the same thing it's that good old blessing of a skin knee 